Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Last week, one of our listeners wrote on Facebook that after listening to our message last week, if I were to suddenly spring a pop quiz on everybody before or after any of these sermons, she was just going to shout, Israel! And she figures she'd be right. (laughs) And of course, she is right. (laughs) Turn to chapter 6 of the book of Micah. And with any good fortune at all, since I don't believe in luck, we will cover chapter 6 and chapter 7 because they really work as a unit. And if we can do that, we can close the book of Micah tonight. And then next week, we would pick back up where we left off in 2 Kings. And we can go ahead and finish that book because we're going to have a much greater understanding of what the prophets said at that juncture in history. Now, Micah 6 and 7 is Micah's last vision that he writes about. It can really be broken down into four large sections that really follow the model, really follow the outline that we've been used to. It starts with God indicting his people, and in fact, it's like a courtroom setting. God is going to charge Israel, but the jury is going to be the earth. He actually testifies that the mountains and the earth are going to hear his claims against his people. And that's the first half of chapter 6. The second half of chapter 6 is Micah saying, what can we do about that? What are we possibly going to do? What can we possibly say? How many rams would we have to kill? How much oil would we have to spill? How many sacrifices, even if I gave my firstborn child, would that be enough to make up for what Israel has done against God? And then chapter 7, the first part is God saying, well, then here's what I'm going to do in response to your rebellion against me. And the first half is immediate history. He tells them that they are going to abandon their land And he is going to put them into bondage. He is going to punish them in an immediate fashion. But then the last part of chapter 7 and the end of the book of Micah transitions into God saying, but I will keep a remnant of Israel and I will plant them and I will increase their borders and everything that I've ever promised them, I'm going to do. So that's chapter 6 and 7. So let's start at chapter 6 verse 1. I'm going to try not to do too much commentary. In fact, if you read the commentaries on the book of Micah, for the most part, they are fairly perfunctory because there's not a lot to say outside of uh, explaining some of the Hebraisms, some of the word choices, talking about what things mean, essentially what the words mean. There's not a great deal of explanation 
for the words that you're going to find in this chapter, for the narrative that Micah is going to lay out in these two chapters. They are self-explanatory on their face, and pretty much anybody reading them is going to understand what the point is. So we should be able to get through these two chapters pretty quickly. Chapter 6, verse 1. Hear now what the Lord is saying. This is the beginning of his indictment against his people. And he's going to call the mountains and call the land to hear his case against his people. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. So God has gone beyond just humans, just mankind. He's gone to his creation. He's saying that the creation, the land, the mountains, they themselves being part of God's larger creation, will serve as the witnesses against Israel when God indicts Israel. Now there are some commentators who say that this reference to the mountain and to the land is actually a reference to people who are high and mighty or people who are gathered on mountains or people who live in the land. And I don't think so because he knows how to say, listen, people of the land, and he doesn't. I think this is very much like God saying, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day. This is God's creation witnessing against his people. So arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth because the Lord has a case against his people. Micah has said this a couple of times now, that God has a case against his people. And that's why I began by saying it's kind of a courtroom setting. It's kind of a forensic argument that God is making against them, that he has given them his law. He has told them how to live. He has given them fair warning what the expectation is and what's going to happen if they don't do it. And nevertheless, they rebelled against him. And therefore, he is just in pouring out his punishment. This is not an arbitrary act. This is not a capricious God we're talking about. This is a God who has said, if you do it this way, I'll bless you. If you do it this way, I'll curse you. And they have rebelled against him. And so he's now going to lay out the curses because he is a faithful God who does what he says and says what he does. Because the Lord has a case against his people, even with Israel, he will dispute. Verse 3, my people, here's his first argument. What have I done to you and how have I wearied you? Answer me. Now, this is his first argument. How can you possibly say in your rebellion against me that I have somehow wearied you with the things that I've expected from you? I have protected you. I have delivered you. I have redeemed you. I've given you bread from heaven. I've given you water from a rock. Where exactly have I wronged you that you would turn your back on me? My people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Answer me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery. 
They were slaves in Egypt, and God delivered them out of Egypt. So now God's kind of listing his credits. I've done nothing but good for you, and yet you've turned against me. I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. So I even gave you good leaders. I even gave you people through whom I spoke to you. Moses came up on the mountain. I spoke to Moses. He came down and told you what I said. I gave him Aaron. Aaron became the high priest so that Aaron could sacrifice on your behalf to me. So I spoke to you and I accepted sacrifices from you. I gave you everything you needed to come to me and yet you rebelled against me. I sent you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, my people. Remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. Well, we looked at this a long time ago. Essentially, all that story is saying is God wants the people to remember that Balak, their enemy, hired Balaam to curse Israel. But Balaam kept saying, I cannot curse what God has blessed. I can only say what God says. So now God takes credit for that and says, I have the responsibility of making sure that Balaam did not curse you while you were out in the wilderness. I made sure that Balaam couldn't curse you because I kept blessing you. So where exactly have I wronged you? Where exactly have I done anything wrong here? I took you out of Egypt. I gave you good leaders. I wouldn't let you be cursed. And then this odd phrase that you can read right past and not get the point, but he says, and from Shittim to Gilgal. And unless you do a bit of research, you won't understand what that phrase means. Shittim was the last place that Israel encamped before coming into the promised land. Gilgal is the first place they encamped once they had come into the promised land. So what stood between Shittim and Gilgal? The Jordan River at flood stage. But you may remember that God brought them into the promised land by having the priests go ahead of them, carrying the ark of God, and as soon as their feet touched the water, as soon as their sandals got damp, God separated the waters in the flood stage Jordan River long enough that all of Israel could pass over on dry land. This was such an important event that God had them collect 12 smooth stones from the base of the river, where all the water would be, where no man could get, pick up rocks and bring them up here and build a monument so that in days coming, when your children say, what mean these rocks? You can tell them about how God delivered you through the Jordan River. So that's what he's reminding them of. I moved you from Shittim all the way to Gilgal, and in between, I took you through the Jordan River. Well, to any Jew who knew his history, that would resonate. To us, 21st century Gentiles, we don't know what happened there. But it's God stating his case. I delivered you, I delivered you, I delivered you. I took you out of Egypt. How? Through the Red Sea. I parted the Red Sea. I drowned all your enemies. I brought plagues on Egypt. I did all that for you. I made sure you weren't cursed. I made sure that Balaam could only bless you. I gave you good leadership. 
I brought you from your encampment on that side of the Jordan to your encampment on this side of the Jordan. And I did all of that in order that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. Okay, that's his case. He's laid out his case now. I've been nothing but good to you. How have I wearied you? Who's going to lay a claim against me? At this point, Micah's going to say, given how guilty we are, and given how good you've been to us, what would I have to do to, to make payment? How could I make restitution? How could I sacrifice adequately to make up for our sin? Verse 6, with what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams or in 10,000 rivers of oil? He's now moved into hyperbole. He's now saying if there were 10,000 rivers flowing with oil, would that be enough to appease God? Because God's been good to us and we've rebelled. Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts? Shall I do what Abraham did? You required that Abraham would kill the child that he loved. If, and then you sustained his hand. You didn't allow him to make that sacrifice. What if I was to actually do it? What if I took my child and killed him? Would that buy my redemption? Would that buy my salvation? Could I make up the difference between me and God by doing that? So you hear the desperation in Micah's plea. What's it going to take to pay for this? Is it going to take thousands of yearlings? Is it going to take thousands of sacrifices, thousands of rivers of oil? Is it going to take the death of my firstborn? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Micah is asking, will the fruit of my body, my own child, if I were to sacrifice him, would that be adequate for my soul? Obviously, these questions are rhetorical in nature. The answer to all of them is no. You can't pay enough. There's nothing you can pay to make up for Israel's sin or even make up for your own sin. Your rebellion against God is such that he is going to punish you and he is going to redeem you. But there is no other way to justify yourself before God. He has told you, O oh man, this is verse 8, he has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness. Now in a moment he's going to talk about how they have not been like that. He gave them the law. He gave them the standards of behavior as a nation, how to act, how to perform as a theocracy. But Jesus argued that the very essence of the law was broken down into two great commands. You'll love the Lord with all your heart and mind, with all your soul and strength. And then he said, and the second command is like that, you will love your neighbor as yourself. Paul picks it up, writing to the Corinthians and says, these rules, you shall not covet, you shall not murder, you shall not lie. These are all wrapped up in the one commandment, you will love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, love is the fulfillment of the law. 
So the whole of the law, theologically speaking, is summed up in love God. That takes care of the first three commandments. And well, the first four commandments, including the Sabbath then. And love your neighbor. That takes care of the last six commandments. And if you would just do that, you would fulfill the law. So God has said, what have I required of you but to do justice and to love kindness? Now, they weren't doing that. They were cheating one another. They were selling one another. They were lying to one another. They were enriching themselves off the back of the lesser people of Israel. They were not doing the one thing that God required, which was justice and kindness. Now, theologically speaking, that principle carries over into the New Testament. As I mentioned, even Paul established that as part of the Christian teaching, that loving one another was the fulfillment of the law. Because if you loved each other, I wouldn't have to tell you, now don't kill each other. You just wouldn't. You love each other. You want what's best for each other. You want the welfare of each other. I wouldn't have to tell you, don't cheat. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't covet. Because you naturally wouldn't. Because the primary emphasis in your life would be loving one another. And so if we take the whole of the law... According to the New Testament statements by Jesus and Paul, if you take the whole of the law, it can be summed up in do justice, love one another. And they couldn't do that. Israel would not do that. So God asks, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? I could extrapolate on this for hours because this is something that I'm constantly struggling with, trying to figure out what level of humility is appropriate for GCA generally and for me personally. Sometimes the things that I read on Facebook or on the Internet I think, well, well, that's rebellious against God, and a humble person wouldn't even entertain that. Sometimes I think, well, I should be praying constantly. I should be praying continually. I should never get lifted up in any kind of pride or arrogance or self-importance because I should walk humbly before God. And then I figured out that every time I'm worrying about how humble I am, I've put the emphasis back on me. Am I being humble enough? Am I being good enough? And the answer is always no. Because the emphasis is walk humbly before your God. And the more you know about who God is, the more you know about what he's like and what he expects and what his sovereignty includes, the easier it is for you to recognize that the distance between you and him is so infinite that you have to be humble before him. And I can walk humbly before my God and laugh with my friends. I can walk humbly before my God and, and eat a good meal. I'm fortunate that God has graced me with good food. I can walk humbly before my God and preach his word without feeling that it's all about me because I recognize the majesty 
I recognize the wonder and the superior splendor of God. So the next time that you start thinking, I need to be more humble, take your eyes off you, quit gazing at your navel, quit trying to decide whether you're being good enough, and recognize who God is and what God is like, and that will naturally bring you to a point of humility. Does that make sense? Yes. So this is a wonderfully theological statement that Micah makes. What does God require of you? That you walk humbly before your God. And in everything you do in your life, in everything that he graces you with, and is kind to you and gives you, say thank you, wear it in humility, eat it in humility, participate in it in humility, but recognize that God is superior over all of it. And never let any of it get in the way of your relationship with God and his constant state of superiority over your life. I think that's what it means to walk humbly before our God. Make sense? Makes sense, sir. Okay. Verse 9, the voice of the Lord will call to the city. This is Jerusalem. And it is sound wisdom to fear thy name. How often have we heard that in the Bible? This is not something that's said occasionally. This is something that is said repeatedly. That's the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Now, this isn't talking about slavish fear. This isn't talking about trembling before God for fear that he's going to do some damage to you. It's recognizing, again, what I just talked about, the superiority of God. Look, if God in all his might, in all his splendor, were to show up right now in this room, there wouldn't be anybody sitting here going, oh, hi, it's good that you're here. We'd be on our face in front of him, recognizing that he's not like us and we're not like him. He's far superior to us, and therefore we have reverence toward him. And that's what he's talking about here. It is sound wisdom to reverence, to fear thy name. Hear, O tribe, who has appointed its time. Okay, so God's going to pour out the punishments. Who has appointed the punishments and their appropriate times? Well, God has. God is a God of set times. I'll tell you a funny story. Sure, we can use a funny story right now. After all this heaviness. Years ago, I taught Sunday school at a church in Franklin. And I was talking about the feasts of the Lord. And I said to all the kids, God is a God of set times. And I said that a couple of times so they would get it because that's what the feasts of the Lord mean, the set times of the Lord. That's why he was very specific about when they would come to Jerusalem and when they would come to, to worship him and to eat their tithes and to have their banquet before him and just recognize his participation in every aspect of their life. And so God is the God of set times. And that Sunday, a parent came up to me and said, what did you teach our children this morning? And I said, I taught them that God is a God of set times. And they went, oh, okay, that makes sense. Because we asked our son, what did you learn in Sunday school? And he said, God always sets time. Like with his watch. <laughs> he sets the time. <laughs> Ready, for a new Rolex. Ready for a new Rolex. God sets time. Well, it's essentially true. God 
is a God of set times. And so he's going to bring about these punishments. He's going to bring about everything that happens on the planet at the exact time that he has determined. He has appointed everything's time. He appointed the time of your birth. He appointed the time of your death. He appointed the times of your sickness. He appointed the time that Christ is going to come back. He appointed the time of the occurrence of Antichrist on the planet in the beginning of the seven years. He appoints all these things. He knows what he's doing. The earth is on a calendar that is being ruled over by God. So he says, is there yet a man in the wicked house along with the treasures of wickedness. What he's saying is the people of Jerusalem, the people in the city, remember he's speaking to the city. This is a call to the city. If there's any man who's living in his wickedness anywhere with the treasures he has accumulated through his wickedness, well, then this is what God says to you. A short measure that is cursed. That's one of the treasures of wickedness. When you went into the marketplace, they would use balances in order to determine how much silver or how much metal you would give in exchange for something to determine the weight of the money. But they would very frequently misweigh the balances so that they would be enriched by the fact that they were overcharging their brethren. And of course, God has called them, I'm going to keep saying this, God has called them to be fair with their brethren. They are Israel. Be fair with other Israelites. Love the other Israelites. Be just with the other Israelites. And they weren't. They were cheating them. And they were gaining the treasures of wickedness. And a short measure that is cursed. Now look at verse 11. It says, can I justify wicked scales? talk about the word justify for just a moment. My son and I were talking about it before we began tonight. By the way, I spoke to Greg Spots yesterday on the phone. You know, I'm going to be in Chattanooga week after next, and I was all prepared to teach for four days, one lesson four times, and I told him, that's great. I never get to practice anything. You know, by Thursday, I'll have this down. That'll be great. He called me yesterday and said, We've rearranged the schedule. We've changed everything. Would you mind just preaching in one of the 12 o'clock slots? And I said, you know me. I'll do anything you ask. Whatever you need from me, I'll do it. And then I hung up the phone, and I turned to my kids and went, what did I just do? I have notes <laughs> for the lesson I was going to teach. And I even spent money on some fold out pamphlets from the Heart Association to hand out during these lessons. And then he said, no, I want you to preach. Well, almost immediately, I thought, oh, I know what I want to preach. I want to preach justification from the book of Galatians. I want to talk about the doctrine of justification because I do think that far too many churches just don't uh, talk about that, just kind of ignore it, and just don't understand that human beings actually need to be justified. But in order to understand what justification is, this is a perfect verse. Can I justify wicked scales? So I have these scales that are off balance to enrich myself. Now, how do I justify them? Well, this is great because that's talking about an inanimate object. So you can take the concept of justification out of the realm of just humans, and you can think about what it is to justify something. What it is to justify something 
is to explain why it's okay. For instance, any parents here that have ever walked into a bedroom or a kitchen and found their children either grabbing the cookie jar or messing up their room or doing something they're not supposed to, if you say, what are you doing? The child's first instinct is to justify themselves. They'll say, I wasn't here. I didn't do it. Did you see the smile on April's face? <laughs> she knows exactly what I'm talking about. She deals with children all day, every day. Am I telling the truth? Yes. yes. OK. Yeah, kids will say, I wasn't there. It, didn't ha it was already like this when I got here. They'll give you some excuse for why they're doing it. And that is what it is to justify yourself. Now, before God, you're either going to justify yourself based on some performance that you're going to point to. Look, I was good here. I did this good thing. I followed these rules. Therefore, I should be OK in your presence. Or you're going to admit that you have sinned, that you did mess up the room, that you did steal the cookies, that you did break the lamp. You're going to admit that you're wrong and then expect someone else to justify you. And that's exactly what Christianity is all about. That we admit that we're sinners, we admit that we're wrong, we admit that we've sinned against God, and then we expect that someone else will justify us. And Christ has justified us. That's a cardinal doctrine of the New Testament. In fact, Paul goes so far as to argue, from the book of Galatians, to argue that we simply cannot be justified by the law. No one is justified by their works, by their effort. You cannot be okay with God based on what you do. You have to be justified before God by somebody who stands in the gap and makes it okay between you and God. And that's the heart of what justification is. And so here's the question. Can I justify wicked scales? Okay, God's caught me. Okay, my scales are out of balance. Okay, I've enriched myself off these unbalanced scales. What am I going to do about it? Can I justify it? Isn't that a great question? Can I make an excuse for it? Can I tell God why I did that? And he'll go, oh, I see, I get it. Can I justify wicked scales and a bag of deceptive weights? Oftentimes, they would put a bag that was a designated weight on one side of the scale, and then you'd put your money on the other side of the scale, and if they balanced out, that was worth that much money. But as often as not, they would take a little something out of the bag so the bag was a little light so that you'd have to put a little more money on it so that it would balance. Or, or they'd put a little something extra in the bag or under the scale so that it was heavier so that you'd have to put more money on so that it would balance out. And there's no way to justify that. God chose that as a very particular sin so that he could say, here's an example of how you have sinned against your brother how are you going to justify it? And they can't. Verse 12. For the rich men of the city are full of violence. Her residents speak lies. And their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. So also I will make you sick 
striking you down, desolating you because of your sins. And you will eat, but you will not be satisfied. And your vileness will be in your midst. You will try to remove something for safekeeping. Actually, the Hebrew phrase is just, you will remove. The NASB translators added for safekeeping so that we would get the idea. But you will remove something, but you will not preserve. Even though you hide something, even though you put something aside for yourself, nevertheless, you're not going to be able to preserve it. And what you do preserve, I will give to the sword. So here's God taking complete responsibility for the fact that the soldiers are going to come in. The army of Assyria is going to come in. It's going to take their food, going to take their wine, going to take their grapes, going to take anything that they had put aside, anything they had stored up for themselves. All these things are going to be taken from them. And God speaks this way frequently. He talks about you're going to eat, but you're not going to be satisfied. He even goes so far as to say you will store up your money but then you will put it in bags with holes in them and I'll make sure your money drains away for the rich man of the city are full of violence. Her residents speak lies. Their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. So also I will make you sick. I will strike you down, desolating you because of your sins. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied and your vileness will be in your midst. You will try to remove for safekeeping, but you will not preserve anything. And what you do preserve, I will give to the sword. Oh, that's the end of that phrase about uh, I will, you will put money in bags with holes in it. He then admits uh, you'll only be left with a little, and what little you have I'll blow on. <laughs> I will just make sure that I desolate you. When God is against you, there is no way to avoid it. So you will sow, but you will not reap. This is verse 15. You will tread the olive, but you will not anoint yourself with oil. And you will grow grapes. You'll have vines full of grapes. That's part of the reaping part. You will reap grapes, but you will not drink wine. The statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab are observed, and in their devices you walk. Okay, so who is Omri and Ahab? Right, kings of Israel. These were the two worst of the kings. Absolutely. So Ahab and Omri, being the worst of the kings, have not only influenced the northern tribes, but they've influenced the southern tribes. And so God, number one, says, I've noticed it. I've seen it all. I know everything you're doing. I've observed what you're doing and what these kings have done. And secondarily, you walk in their devices. They have said the wrong things. They have set up false worship. They have created false gods, and you have followed with them. By the way, notice that God holds them accountable for not rebelling against the evil kings who took them into false worship, idol worship, rebellion against God, which I really find interesting. God not only holds the kings responsible for leading Israel astray, he holds Israel responsible for following them. I have often said, this is just my own pet peeve, I've heard so many bad preachers and false 
teachers. I, I wonder how it is that people can sit still for it and why they don't rise up in mass and say, that's wrong. Stop saying that. But there is this attitude in most churches, this correctness. I was going to call it a political correctness, but it's not. It's a religious correctness that when the preacher's up preaching, nobody says anything. You're all expected to sit quietly and listen to a man make up all kinds of crazy things and say all sorts of heretical things, but you can't say anything back because, well, he's the preacher and he's talking. It's one of the reasons that soon as we started all this, I said, you can raise your hand. You can talk back. You can hold me accountable. If I've said something wrong, say so. And so God is going to hold the individuals of Israel responsible for the fact that Omri and Ahab led them into all this falsehood. And God holds them all responsible for not turning to God and away from their kings. And therefore, I will give you up for destruction. And your inhabitants, I'm going to give up for derision. People are going to make fun of you. And you will bear the reproach of my people. Okay, so then there's chapter 7. Now, the beginning of chapter 7, as I said before, is going to start off with a continuation of how bad it is in Israel and then what God's going to do about it, how he's going to punish Israel, how he's going to take them immediately into captivity. But then he's going to, in the second half of this chapter, do what all the prophets of Israel do collectively with one voice. He's going to promise Israel a glorious future. So just like our Facebook friend said, if there's a quiz, the answer is Israel. You got it? Woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers and the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat or the first ripe fig which I crave. Okay, this is, this is the prophet Micah talking about what it's going to be like in Israel when God finally starts desolating them, finally does what he said. You're going to grow grapes, but you're not going to drink the wine. You're going to have things that you're going to put aside for yourself, but I'm going to make sure they're wrecked. I'm going to make sure they're ruined. He says, I'm like a fruit picker and a grape gatherer who can't find even a cluster of grapes. Verse 2, the godly person has perished from the land, and there is no upright person among men. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts for the others with a net. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. I like that phrase. I just think that's a good turn of a phrase. I see Micah back there smiling. Not Micah, the author of this book. That Micah, the other Micah. Because that phrase, both hands know how to do evil. I think that's why Jesus would say things like, when you do your alms, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Because there was a time when both hands were quick to do evil. The godly person has perished from the land, and there is no upright person among men. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net concerning evil. Both hands do it well. The prince asks, also the judge, they both ask for a bribe. And a great man speaks the desire of his soul. And so they weave it together. In other words, they weave the lie together. The great men, the judges, the governors of the land, the princes, 
are all looking to enrich themselves rather than to do, remember what God said, all I require of you is justice and that you love one another. And they're not doling out justice. They're doling out whatever they can get for themselves and getting bribes. Verse 4, the best of them is like a briar. Anybody ever fallen into a briar? I see a few heads nodding. Yeah, you fall into a wheat patch with thorns, you know it. You're going to feel that right away. And he says here, that's the best of the people in Israel. They're like a pointed, prickly, sticking briar. The best of them is like a briar, and the most upright of them is like a thorn hedge. The day when you post a watchman, your punishment will come. The purpose of the watchman was to get on the wall and let people know there's trouble coming. Here comes an enemy army. Prepare. He says, as soon as you send a watchman up, before he even gets a chance to call out, the destruction comes. It's going to be that sudden. The day when you post a watchman, your punishment will come, and then their confusion will occur. Do not trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. For her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. And then this phrase will sound very familiar. Verse 6. For son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies are the men of his own household. Does that sound familiar? Okay, when's that going to happen? At what point does that actually occur? Well, Jesus picked up that exact language. Let me hand out a couple verses. Uh, Tom, Matthew 10, 21. And while you're there, we're going to have you read verse 35 too. Jeff, want to read something? Sure. Something? Luke 12, 53. Micah, you want to read something? Sure. Matthew 10, 36. You're going to see where Jesus takes these ideas right from Micah and he casts them out into the future and says, this is going to happen still. It's still coming. There's a time of trouble coming such as never was or ever would be again. And one of the ways that it's marked is by people turning each other over, lying to each other, becoming untrustworthy. But that's still coming. So that gives us some idea of what Micah is predicting here. He's predicting a time of trouble for Israel, not just immediately, but that immediate punishment is a precursor of the ultimate punishment that's coming later. For instance, Matthew 10, 21, Tom. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Read verse 35. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Verbatim. Jesus is saying what Micah has already said, but Jesus is still casting it into the future. So it wasn't satisfied yet when Jesus was on the planet. This kind of time of trouble when God is going to punish Israel ultimately has not yet occurred according to how Jesus cast it into the future. Luke 12, 53, what you got? Same thing Tom just read pretty much. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And Matthew 10, 36 is going to say that a man's enemies are going to be those of his own household. What does it say, Micah? 
And the man's enemies will be the members of his household. That was easy. <laughs> so all I want you to get from that is that this prophecy, which again, I remind you of Micah's accuracy. He predicted exactly where Messiah was going to be born. A little nothing city on the backside of nowhere. He predicted it accurately. So Micah's got credibility as a prophet, and he's saying the same things that all the prophets have said. He's tracking right where Isaiah has talked about what's going to happen to Israel. And then he's predicted some things about God's ultimate punishment of Israel, which Jesus repeated, and Jesus cast it out into the future. And to this point right now, in year 2016, we've yet to see that. So it still has to happen. Verse 7, this is the point at which Micah is going to speak firsthand about his God, but then God's going to predict a glorious end for Israel. But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. A couple of weeks ago, as we were talking about 1 Corinthians, introducing 1 Corinthians, we looked at a whole lot of verses that said, I'm looking forward to, I'm anticipating the return of the Lord. Here it is all the way back in Micah. Here's Micah looking forward to and watching expectantly for the Lord. So all those times that Paul said, I'm eagerly anticipating the return of the Lord, he was expressing the same expectation that had been prophesied all the way back here. But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. Isn't that a great phrase? I'm looking for the Lord and I'm looking for God to save me. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. I like that phrase because sometimes, again, like I said, I, I spend too much time online. I'm trying to break that habit. But I have my news feeds that I read. And if you read the news generally in the world, uh, it's bad news. After a while, you start thinking, man, it's dark out there. It's really getting ugly out there. I'm really trying to decide whether I'm going to keep reading my news feeds or whether I'm going to retain my sanity because you can't seem to do both. But in the midst of darkness, Micah said, I dwell here in darkness. He dwelled in a nation of people who were rebelling against God, chasing after other gods, cheating each other, killing each other. God was against them. God was going to punish them. A darkness is coming for Israel that's worse than anything that anyone has ever seen, according to Jesus himself. And yet he would say, though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light to me. And that's where I find my sanity. That's where I find my light. That's where I find hope. That's where I find peace, is in the fact that God's in control of all this. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Okay, here's his first admission. Because I have sinned against God, because our nation has sinned against God, we're going to bear the indignation of the Lord, but that's not the end of it. 
God is going to punish us, but he's going to restore us. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. Well, that's everything we believe about justification. That's everything we believe about the redemptive work of Christ. We believe that God is going to correct people. He's going to punish people for sin. But in the end, if anyone is justified, if anyone stands before him, redeemed, blood-bought, if anyone stands before him and isn't sent away with an I never knew you, then we know that it's because God pleads our case. We can't plead our case. We can't justify ourselves. We can't kill enough animals or bring enough rivers of oil. There's nothing we can do to make it okay with God, but God will plead our case. So I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me out to the light and I will see my righteousness. I will see his righteousness. I have sinned against him. I am unrighteous. But when he pleads my case, when he justifies me, I'm going to recognize he's the righteous one and he's the one who is lifting me up again and making me walk in the light. He is the one who is revealing himself to me. And then, verse 10, and then my enemy will see and shame will cover her whoever said to me, where is the Lord your God? That's right. When Israel is reestablished, when Israel is standing on the planet again and Jesus is judging from Jerusalem, when that all happens, all those cynics, all those people who have asked us, where is your God? Their mouths are going to be closed because there's going to be no more question about who's in control. In fact, he says that my eyes will look on her at that time, she will be trampled down like mire in the streets. It will be a day for building your walls, and that day will your boundary be extended. Okay, what this is really talking about is way back at Abraham, with the Abrahamic covenant and the Abrahamic promise, God promised Abraham a landmass that went all the way to the Euphrates River and all the way down to the Nile River. And Israel has never occupied all that land. But when God brings back all 12 tribes of Israel, they're going to have to have a larger landmass and so he's going to finally do the very thing that he promised to Abraham, and he's going to extend their borders, and they're going to build their walls. It will be a day when they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, from Egypt even to the Euphrates, even from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain, and the earth will become desolate because of her inhabitants on account of the fruit of their deeds. I don't have time to get into this deeply right now, but when you get into the book of Revelation, when you get into the time of trouble, such as never was or ever would be again, huge masses, a third of the human population is wiped out just with plagues and killing. And so there's going to be a desolation of the land that is going to come about. The earth will be desolate because of her inhabitants 
and on account of the fruit of their deeds. But look at verse 14. So shepherd thy people with thy scepter. Bring Jesus back, set him on his throne to rule from Jerusalem, and give him his absolute right of rulership, which is what a scepter denotes. That's why when they crown a king, crown a queen, they put a scepter in their hand. That is a sign of their right to rule. And Christ is going to rule from Jerusalem with his scepter over all the nations of the earth. And so he would say, shepherd thy people with thy scepter and thy flock of thy possession, which dwells by itself in the woodland, in the midst of a fruitful field, let them feed in Bashan and Gilead. Those were the two most green places. Those were the pastures where the sheep would feed. Now, again, I don't have time to go into this in any great length, but he's talking about a remnant of Israel here who's going to be found somewhere in the woodland. What's he talking about? Well, Jesus already told us what he's talking about. He said, when you see the abomination of desolation who's spoken of by the prophet Daniel, then flee into the wilderness. And then he says specifically what people he's talking about. You that are in Judea. If you're in the field, don't go back to the house. If you're on the rooftop, don't get anything. Just flee into the wilderness. All the way back here in Micah, he said that there was going to be the flock of God's possession who were dwelling all by itself in the woodland. That's that remnant of Israel, the remnant of the Jews that are going to get through the time of tribulation that God is going to use to establish the millennial period. And then he's going to call out all the inhabitants of Israel from all the Gentile nations and bring them back to their homeland, which he's going to increase, and his borders and his boundaries he's going to increase, and then they're going to feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. So there's going to be a restitution of Israel. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt. When they came out of the land of Egypt, what phrase did God use over and over to describe the land he was taking them to? It's a land of milk and honey. It's a goodly land full of fruit. It's going to feed you and take care of you. Well, they remember that. They remember the days of old when Israel was fruitful and plentiful. And so even after this destruction, after this desolation, there's going to come a time when they're going to feed like in the flocks of Bashan and Gilead, just like it was in the days of old, in those days when they came out of Egypt. And God says, and I will show you miracles. There's a time coming when God is miraculously going to restore all of Israel like a nation born in a day. Remarkable miracles are going to be done in that time. Nations will see and they will be ashamed of all their might, all their power, all their rebellion, all their turning against Israel, all their turning against the God of Israel. They're going to be ashamed that they ever did that. They will put their hand on their mouth. In other words, they're just going to shut up. Just be quiet. Just quit boasting, quit talking, and their ears will be deafened. They will lick the dust like a serpent, like the reptiles of the earth. They will come trembling out of their fortresses. To the Lord our God, they will come in dread, 
and they will be afraid before thee. So here's the prediction that all the nations of the earth, all the Gentile nations that are against Israel, suppressing Israel, that are taking Israel into bondage, all those nations at some point are going to be so humbled, are going to come so low that they're going to be like the serpents licking the dust. And when they have God to stand before, think about it. I mean, what if Christ was on the planet? If Christ is on the planet ruling at Jerusalem and and he's God incarnate and you have to come before him? You're going to come before him with dread and trembling because you've been his enemy all this time. And now he's called for you. They will be afraid before you. And so Micah says, verse 18, who is a God like you who pardons iniquity? Who's like that God? What other God can you point to? There is no other God, but one of the amazing parts of God is that he forgives the iniquity of his people. He has chosen Israel, and he's going to restore Israel, and he's going to take their sin, and he's going to wipe it away utterly and completely. And so Micah says, who is a God like thee? Who pardons iniquity? And then he expands on it. And a God that passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession. Okay, why is God going to pass over the rebellion of his remnant? Because they're his people. They belong to him. That cannot change. And because it can't change, God is going to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. He's going to justify them. He's going to make them righteous. He's going to save them. And how is he going to do that? Well, you get to Jeremiah 31 and you find out through a new covenant. A new covenant that's mentioned in the book of Isaiah. A new covenant that's mentioned by Jesus. A new covenant that's mentioned in the book of Hebrews. God is going to, by the death of Christ, And the spilling of Christ's blood on behalf of all God's people, he is going to then do away with the iniquity and the sin and the rebellion specifically of those people who belong to him. And that's exactly what Micah says. And he passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. By the way, I know we got to go. We're nearly done here. You can see there's only a couple more verses. But aren't you glad that that's the kind of God you worship? Yes. (laughs) Aren't you glad that God passes over your rebellious acts because you belong to him? Because he is your father and he has adopted you everlastingly as his child, he is going to make sure that you wind up in his presence and he's not even going to bring up your sin. Because he sent Christ the first time with reference to sin, but Christ is coming back without reference to sin because the sin problem is taken care of the sin issue is taken care of I wish that I could extrapolate more on that but I don't think any of us really understand that when the sun sets us free we're actually genuinely truly free people use the word radical radically free I believe that sometimes I get worried I think, oh, man, if God counts sin, I'm in trouble. Oh, I shouldn't have been here. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have. Oh, I've got so many regrets. Oh, where I've been and what I've done. I've got so many. And then I'm reminded that even back in the Old Testament, even all the way back to Abraham being told that when he believed God, that was counted to him for righteousness. Salvation has always been a reaction to faith. 
Salvation has always been people believing God and then God establishing their righteousness and doing away with their sin utterly and completely. In fact, listen to this phrase. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you. God delights in everlasting love. Human beings, not real good on the love thing. God, perfect in his love. And so those people who belong to him, who he has always loved, those people are going to be forgiven completely and utterly. And in fact, I would go so far as to tell you, exclaim to you, celebrate with you the fact that you are already forgiven right here, right now. There's nothing that's going to jump up and get you. I think it. I wake up in the middle of the night and go, oh, no. Oh, where I've been, what I've done. But then I'm reminded that there's no part of me, no part of my past, no part of my sin or rebellion that can ever get me because I've been redeemed. I've been blood-bought. I have been perfected by the unchanging love of God. And that is greater and grander and more steady than I am. Steady the right word? I'm going with that. He will again have compassion on us. Who's us in that sentence? Israel. 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 The answer is always Israel. The answer is always Israel. He will again have compassion on us. I don't think you need a more clear statement. How often have we heard it now? How many times have we seen it now? God is going to punish Israel. God's going to bring about a time of trouble such as never was, ever would be again. But God will again have mercy on Israel. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. I I just can't even count the number of people who I have heard, who I have read, who have said, God is finished with Israel because... And then they list all the things that Israel did wrong. They broke his law. They worshiped other gods. Whatever it is they did, God is done with them. And now he's turned his attention solely and completely to the church. The church is the crown of his creation. And he's never going to return to national Israel. I can't even tell you how often I have heard that in my life. That is the exact opposite of what the Bible says. Because he is going to have compassion on them again, tread their iniquities underfoot. All that stuff that the preachers use to say, Israel did this, Israel did that, Israel did the other thing. You're right. They did. Yes. And God's going to forgive them. Because how many things have you done? And God's going to forgive you. If he can forgive you, why can't he forgive Israel? especially considering how often he has now said, that's what I'm going to do. (laughs) I'm going to forgive Israel. Okay, we're done here. Look at the last phrase. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Good plan. Good plan. (laughs) Take all the sins of all your people Cast them behind your back. Throw them into the sea. Forget them entirely. Redeem your people. Love your people. Justify your people. That's the plan of God. 
Verse 20, thou wilt give truth to Jacob. Okay, that's exactly what the new covenant says God will do. He's going to write his laws on their hearts. He's going to at some point bring truth. And notice here, it doesn't say you're going to bring truth to Israel. Once again, he uses that name, heel catcher, supplanter, the rebellious one. You will bring truth to that one. You will bring truth to Jacob. By the way, if that's true, if it's true that God intends to bring truth to Jacob, and if it hasn't happened yet, because we would argue still, even if Jacob is nothing more than the Jews, we would have to argue that they don't know the truth, right? Mm -hmm. So God has said he's going to bring truth to Jacob, and he hasn't done it yet. What are we going to say about that? Because in order to bring truth to Jacob, Jacob has to exist. Israel has to be gathered. The Jews, even if he collected every Jew on the planet, is just Judah and Benjamin. It's not Jacob. It's all 12 tribes that make up Jacob, and you have to regather them and make sure they exist to bring them the truth. And God said he's going to do that. Thou wilt give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham. What does that mean? Abraham's been long dead. He's talking about the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those people who are the physical descendants of Abraham, those are the people that you are going to have unchanging love for, which is the opposite of I will give them up and forget them and never return to them. <laughs> which is preached far and wide. I will have unchanging love for Abraham, which thou did swear to our forefathers. You swore, God, you made a promise to our forefathers that you were going to give us this land in perpetuity forever and that we were going to be as numerous as the sands of the sea and as the stars of the heaven, you even said you were going to increase our borders all the way to the Euphrates and the Nile, that we were going to be the major kingdom on the planet. You said all these things. You have to do it. You made promises to our forefathers from the days of old, from the very beginning. And here we are, the descendants of Abraham, who you made those promises to, and therefore we're counting on you to do absolutely everything you said you would do. By the way, Micah is expressing faith. Even though everything around him is about to turn really bad, really dark, even though Assyria is going to come down, even though Babylon's going to come down, even though they're going to go into bondage, even though it's going to be a horrible time for national Israel, nevertheless, he believes the word of God that was preached to Abraham, that God is going to restore Israel. So he set his faith. He believed the word of God despite his circumstances. And I argue that that's what faith is, standing on the word of God despite our circumstances. And even though the world is incredibly dark and getting darker, and even though the world hates Christianity and hates God, and even though the world is in utter rebellion, I believe Christ is coming back because that's what he said. And when he comes back, he's going to set up his kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
And when he establishes that kingdom, Jesus is going to sit on the throne of David and he's going to rule over Israel from Jerusalem and those blessings are going to flow out to all the Gentile nations and I believe that because the word says it. You can go on the internet anytime. You can turn on the TV, radio, news, anywhere and you'll find somebody who says you can't trust the Bible. That's what no faith looks like. That's what Paul calls apistus, the opposite of faith. But the word of God says what it says and I'm willing to stand on it. Got it? Yes, sir. Good, then I'm done. Next week, we're in 2 Kings. And the answer to every question, church. before or afterwards, church. is church. <laughs> <laughs> the answer to every question is Israel. <laughs> Wait till we get to Sunday morning and we're back in the Corinthians, and then you can say church. All right, good. Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.